Good evening, this is the third Bible study on Through the Eyes of Color. Um, as we gather together at Lake City United Methodist Church to look at our history, our heritage, our rites of passage as we begin to dig deep. Tonight's lesson, lesson three, is still on chapter number two, starts to chapter number two. And we start to look like is look at is Christianity the white man's religion? Um, we had fun with this part of the lesson. It just goes to show how far we need to go. Um, thank you. I hope you enjoy. Actually, doing back doing pretty good. Well, that's okay. good. That's good. I've been praying for him. You know how how do we how do we understand this Bible, this book that we're reading? How do we understand it in cultural context? How does it fit into our day-to-day -day lives? Now, I'm going to tell you all something, and some of you all may not be aware of it, but there are there's a movement amongst a lot of young African-American males, especially, that are disregarding Christianity as a whole. So when we get into this chapter on, is Christianity the white man's religion? You all are asking, why? Why are we doing that chapter? Well, there's a lot of young millennials and a lot of young upstarts that are like, I don't want to be a Christian because Christianity is all white and it has nothing to do with me. And, and we don't see that so much in the South, but it's coming into South Carolina. There's a group of Hebrew Israelites at the campus in um, Charleston. There's a group of Hebrew Israelites in um, Columbia that is growing. There are some Muslim upstart groups in Colombia that are growing, and at the heart of their conversation has been, well, Christianity doesn't say anything to me. It doesn't do anything for me. It, it doesn't help me along my journey. And that's a real concern for us as church folk, because anytime you got a growing movement of people that don't feel that the Bible, the gospel message is relevant to their life and how they're living, we in trouble. And, and what's going to happen is these little spring up movements will continue to grow all around us and our children will start saying crazy things like, well, I'm a spiritualist. I'm not religious. Well, you know, I don't, I don't really, because a lot of young people, and I know we don't want to admit it, but a lot of young people were hurt by the church. The church at some point hurt their feelings or, or, or they felt left out or they felt that they didn't fit. And those kind of feelings have gone on to, as they get in college and they get to start off their life, um, you all see it. I mean, look around Wesley. How many young adults do we have in Wesley? You know, we got one or two, three or four. But we know the community has a lot more young people that should be in church that connect with the Wesley Church that are just not there. And some of them are not there because they don't believe that Christianity has anything to say to them. They don't believe that anything in the faith speaks to where they are and where they need to be. So tonight we're going to kind of look at this question. Tonight we'll spend our time on is Christianity a white man's religion? Is Christianity a white man's religion? Um, and that, that's nothing new. Um, some of us remember the, the era of the civil rights movement, and some understand that you had King in the South, but up north you had with the Black Panther Party um, 
and also the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, you had upstart groups that didn't want anything to do with Christianity at all. They, they were refusing to deal with Christianity. Christianity is just a bunch of folk down south hollering and sweating and not changing anything. But we all know that God calls us to the oppressed. God is the God of the oppressed. And that, that's where we work from. That's where we come at this faith journey from. That's how we gather into it. That's where we connect with the faith, is that God calls us to the faith. God calls us to the movement amongst the faith to be faithful. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we're called. And I think that's so powerful. I want to go ahead and start in prayer, and then we'll move into our lesson. Let us pray. Then God, open our eyes and our ears and our spirits that we might hear from heaven and see you and understand your word. Oh God, just minister to us that we may better know how to live in these trying times we're going through. God bless us. And God bless the, 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 the internet even that we may stay together during this time. But God, you're a mighty good God and you've always been good to us. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 I want to start by going to Luke, the fourth chapter and the 17th through the 21st verse. So Luke 4 and 17 through 21. Um, Want to start off with that text and go there. Um, so you all join us there. And if someone has it, Luke 4, chapter 17 to 21, if you could read all of that for us. Okay. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, unrolled the scroll. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All the way through 21. Okay, I'm sorry. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, this is, a, this is a, the, the main movement, the main mission statement of Jesus Christ. When folk ask, why did Christ come? This is why Christ said he came. This is, this is what he was doing. This is what he was setting up. This was his purpose. This was his purpose statement. This was the mission of Christ. And at the center of that mission of Christ, after proclaiming good news to the poor, mm -hmm. he talks about release to the captives. Yes. And then that the blind will see and the oppressed yes. will be set free. And, and we know that you know the 
um, release of the captives, that's freedom. And yes. then the blind seeing, that's wisdom, is it not? Yes. For yes. those that have been blinded, and, and then the oppressed will be set free. That's freedom again. So you got freedom um, surrounding wisdom in the center part of the mission of Christ. So we know what the church should be about, shouldn't it? It should be about bringing freedom, teaching wisdom, and, and releasing the oppressed. People should not be oppressed in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to anchor in on that, and we need to be serious with that, and, and we need to live by those means and that understanding that folks should not be oppressed, locked down in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Where we got Jesus, there should be an understanding that there is freedom from the oppression. Amen. And that should be the main purpose of the church. Now, if that's the main purpose of the church, I don't see how any oppressed people could not just jump on the bandwagon and be like, oh, I'm going to be a Christian. You're not going to stop me from being a Christian because that's the main purpose. But then we come into this discussion of Elijah Muhammad and his purpose. And I, at this time, I want to mm. share in a video um, that the author was talking about that talks about this whole situation with um, this whole situation of engaging, you know, the, these groups that were starting with the Christianity is a white man's religion. So at this point, I want to share that video and we'll move on from there. It's a little bit long. It's about 10 minutes. So don't y'all fall asleep. I don't think you will. Not on this video. You might fall asleep on some that I show, but I don't think you're going to fall asleep on this one. And we're live. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. And I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm very excited because we are on our fifth installment on the Courageous Conversation series. And if you've been following Jew3, you know we do a series that's near and dear to my heart where we bring a scholar that's been trained in a more conservative evangelical setting and a scholar that's been trained in more of a mainline setting. And today uh, we have a, a conversation on a big controversial issue. And today we're joined by two pastors that have impacted me uh, greatly, um, Dr. Eric Mason of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Dr. Howard John Wesley of Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. So welcome. Uh, Pastors. Thank you. Glad to be with you all today. Thank you. Honor to be with you again, sis. Honor to be with you guys. For, for those who don't know who you are, would you please introduce yourself? Uh, we'll start with Dr. Mason. Well, Eric Mason, uh, pastor of Epiphany Fellowship um, and a husband of one wife. <laughs> got, um, got four kids, four wonderful kids, and um, been doing ministry in Philly for about 10 years, but been in ministry for about 23 years. And uh, yeah, that's uh, run an organization called Thriving, an urban resource collaborative that's committed to training urban leaders for a gospel mission in particularly urban context. So, yeah. Awesome. And Dr. Wesley? Uh, real simple, Howard John Wesley, pastor of Al Street Baptist Church, last eight years. Before that, I had the joy of serving 10 years at St. John's Congregational Church in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm originally from Chicago, came up undergrad at Duke, did um, seminary at Boston University, finished up uh, D-Man at Northern Baptist, 
and I'm now a glutton for punishment working on my PhD at Christian Theological in Africa, <laughs> preaching in sacred rhetoric. So uh, real committed to the cause of the proclamation of Christ and pastoring the traditional church with yet a relevant and real ministry with an eye towards social justice and missions around the world. It's probably where I put, you know, my passions and grateful uh, that Dr. Mason and I represent the long legacy of great preaching capital man. Just to let everybody know before we get in. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, both of you have spoke a lot about this subject. I know, uh, Dr. Wesley, you're in a series in the United States that um, addresses this. And Dr. Mason, you've done the Woke series. Um, and both of your series have been very popular and circulated um, online. Um, how do you address this notion that Christianity is a white man's religion? Um, Dr. Mason, you, you could go first. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that um, is attacking the root of it, I think the root of it is really a conversation that was developed, I think probably a little under 100 years ago, mainly promoted by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, which really, um, actually, um, Dr. Wesley, one of my, one of my line brothers, um, we talk about it all the time because he was Nation of Islam when, when we were coming through. And so one of the things I talked about, talked to him about, which is, a broader conversation of this is the fact that he started a narrative that acted like Christianity was first introduced to, introduced to African people um, post the Middle Passage. And, and so most of that narrative, to be honest, has colored the way um, the quote-unquote conscious movements uh, had, uh, look at Christianity. And so because of that, that whole idea of it being a white man's religion, it being forced on us, and I'm like, man, nah, the first thousand years of Christianity was in Africa, you know? And so it's, so I'm, I, and, I, and when you tell people that they, they're like, nah, and then you begin to walk them through how, you know, many of their fathers, when you look at Athanasius, who's called the Black Dwarf, you know, um, when you look at Tertullian, who was talking about the Trinity well before 325 AD, you know, um, before 325 AD, and Augustine, and you begin going through, these were North African, men of color and um, even the desert mothers, no matter what you believe about what they believe, they were African women. So when you go through all of these, when you begin educating people beyond the narrative of just the white Jesus, the whole recoloring, and I think the challenge has been is, is that um, white, I would say fundamentalism has played a significant role in creating um, really this narrative that Christianity is the white man's religion, which to, to me is um, a breaking of the commandments because it's a lie and it's promoted a, a degradation, particularly of African-Americans in relation to us being born in the image of God, just like everyone else is. And so I think that would be the beginning of how I would begin to engage someone concerning the ideal, the trajectory and the narrative of that. So, yeah. I'm really glad that to me, man, so there's a core part of this that goes to Christianity and the Bible, what's in its core, and then how it's perverted and manipulated and used. Yeah. I think all of us can agree that at the core principles of the message and ministry of Jesus Christ is a radicality and rebelliousness that has been lost by the way Christianity has been perverted. Um, I trace that route back to Constantine. 
and what happens when Christianity draws closer to becoming the state religion of Rome, it yeah. moves away from the real authentic message of Jesus Christ. And so what's passed down from Roman civilization is this weak and watered down version of Christianity that endorses policy procedure of the state rather than challenging it. I mean, we got to remember Jesus was crucified because he stood against Rome. And yet Rome then incorporates that message. And as a result, you see nations all around the world uh, using Christianity to mask an evil that we all can agree is absolutely contrary to the nature of God and the true teaching of the word and in Jesus Christ. So when you can support Nazism and the Holocaust, right. Christianity, you know something's wrong with how it's being used. When you can support apartheid, when you can support slavery, when you can support Jim Crow, what you get is a perverted version of Christianity that doesn't right. really care at the core. And even today, the fundamentalist use, when we talk about this right-wing ultra-conservative GOP movement, maybe Christian is really a caricature of Jesus Christ because what they purport and how the policies that they support are not at the core of who and what Jesus Christ really is. And so as Dr. Mason not only talks about the history of Christianity in Africa, but I would say it's even on the post side of the Middle Passage, you've got to look at how African Americans adopted this Christianity that was given to them to make them docile and obedient and how they formed varieties of resistance that embodied that Christianity as a way of saying, no, we, we feel a different Jesus. Not one who's saying that we need to be slaves, but one who pushes us towards freedom. And right. many people are ignorant of how Christianity sparked movements of freedom among slaves, sparked movements of resistance to apartheid in South Africa. So to suggest that it's the white man's religion is to totally ignore how the gospel of Jesus Christ has affected black folk and made them push against social structures that they absolutely have to reject. Yeah, what's powerful about um, what Dr. Wesley is saying, particularly about the post-middle passages, when you talk about, you know, everybody got that little orange book that's kind of going around talking about, to, what is it called, to, to something a Negro. But it's a, it's a book that's kind of like a compilation of ways in which Christianity was, um, was, manip was used manipulatively in order to um, train a slave. Um, and so one of the things that we see with how even Christianity was given to Africans a post the Middle Passage, one of the things was is they weren't allowed to read or become or be literate. But once we became literate, um, which was done through the Black Church, by the way, <laughs> um, yeah. literacy was done through the Black Church. You know, because uh, a lot of a lot of the conscious community are against the Black Church. But the, what what ends up happening is through is what ends up happening is is through that um, they begin to. Uh, have a great experience with reading, understanding what the message of the Bible is, the radical nature of the gospel, and the commitment to the truth of the gospel, which ends up, which ends up in my mind, um, begin formulating what Dr. Wesley is talking about, this Christianity that I think is a transformative Christianity, which became authentic Christianity, which as they began to get into the nit and gritty of what Christianity actually is, then what, what happened was, is that was the motivation for abol the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, and so forth and so on. Sorry about that, I had to move. But, um, <laughs> um, and, and, so, and so I think that when we look at the, the nature of how the gospel has worked, when you actually look at 
when you look at the message of the Bible, it actually promotes this radical disposition of uh, being against that which would uh, attempt to oppress us because God does uh, identify with the oppressed. So, yeah. And even in the appropriation of the Bible, when you look at all, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize that Christianity has been used to create within black people uh, what Baron Singer in their book called a variety of accommodation all the way to protest. Uh, that there are definitely some elements that were used to uh, make us passive and to accept that this was our God-given state. Mm -hmm. At the very core mm -hmm. of our forefathers and foremothers was a rejection, a rebellion, that, that that's not who God created to be. So when you hear these spirituals, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord to be free. You're talking about some enslaved folk who have the audacity to take the master's religion and subvert it in such a way that they believe that it was a call to freedom. So let me give you a prime example. You know, so for white settlers and slave owners, they saw America as the promised land, that we were coming out of the tyranny of the empirical, the empirical policy of the empire. So they saw Britain as Egypt and America as the promised land. Right. When African Americans start getting into religion and even hearing before they start reading, their adoption of the Exodus narrative flipped it around. They said, no, America is Egypt, and we're looking for our promised land. And so the very Bible that motivated um, Puritans and um, those settlers to leave out of Britain and to come to America is the same narrative that made slaves say, no, we've got to fight against this. I mean, if you look at, like, the rebellions on the extreme end of, like, the Nat Turner and the Denmark BC, you're talking about preachers. You know, about people who use the Bible to motivate. When you look at Harriet Tubman and her work on freeing slaves, this right. is a woman who is deeply motivated by her faith. When you look at the civil rights movement, it always began in church and with prayer and with the word of God and with the inspiration that then gave them the strength to fight and to march. And so, you know, once again, the claim that, that the only thing Christianity has done is to pacify um, African-Americans, I think is a, is a real historical ignorance out of historical ignorance. Now, part of the problem is that in contemporary Christianity, and I know Dr. Mason would agree with this, we've lost that prophetic voice. The black church that voice. The black church has lost its voice to challenge some of these structures, challenge the isms that we still deal with, challenge these racist policies, challenge this current administration. We've become so focused on praise and worship and prosperity that there's a generation now who says, you know, all, all Christianity has done is align itself with very economic and social injustice structures that are still plaguing our people because we don't have many prophets in the pulpit anymore. Right. Ooh, wow. there was a lot in there. <laughs> I told y'all it was gonna be a lot. All right, let's unpack it, what he said. First, let's start with this idea that the Muslims and Elijah Muhammad said that Christianity did not speak to the um the the the, the life of the of um of african americans in this country um have you all heard that before or is that just something i came up with have you all ever heard that yes i have yes sir you know um and the the scary part about it is it's coming back i mean this was back in 1934 but it's it's coming back now and it's more prevalent than ever. And that's a that's a very scary thing. And the idea that 
you know, Christianity is what holds people down, is what burdens people. That's a fair, scary idea, especially when you look at the fact that the passage we read in Luke said the purpose of Christ was to free folk. That was his primary purpose. And yet we see that Christianity has been misused. Why do you Mm -hmm. think Christianity was misused? Did I lose all of y'all? I'm just here by myself. I'm here. I'm here. To keep an oppressed people oppressed. Right. That's basically, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it was was good business. That's it. If I can pacify the people and hold them down, then I can go ahead and and be as mean or as cruel as I want to be because they believe that part of their bondage is their faith. Exactly. Uh And it was good marketing. Yep. But one of the things that we sold, and, and one of the bad things is, we sold Africans, we, we told the narrative as if Christianity just started when folk came over to America in bondage. But we, that leaves out the first two centuries of Christianity. That leaves out all the Christian experience on the continent of Africa. You know, we always talk about the Catholic Church and Roman Church. How many times do we have discussions about the four major African churches, the Nubian churches, the Ethiopian churches, the Coptic churches? We don't ever talk about those churches. And and some are still, the the Coptic and the Ethiopian church are still going on today. You can go over to the continent of Africa and go into an Ethiopian church. You can find Ethiopian Orthodox churches in the United States in some big cities. But we don't ever hear any talk about that, do we? You know, and what has happened is our children and young people have bought into the narrative that really Christianity is just about a, a, a white folks' religion, and there was no there was no understanding. One of the most interesting things in this passage was, you know, you you can't miss what Jesus came to do. Um, you know, and, and and Howard John Wesley in the video, he said, we got to caricature Jesus. Right. And that caricature, that, that drawing, that the bad image of Jesus is that Jesus is passive and soft and, and never looks to help people out. And that's a lot of times how people have embraced the Jesus figure in our, in our congregations. You know, when we go in the congregation, we see this soft hand, white Jesus with this lamb wrapped around in his lap. Does that really conjure up the image of a Jesus that's going to fight on your side? Does it? No. You know, what do we do about before, how many times do we talk in the church before about Christianity before it got to the continent of Europe, before Christianity in Africa? Do we talk about that at all? No. Why? No, sir. Why not? I haven't heard it. 
Why we don't never we talk heard about it? Passed down from generation to generation. When we talk about Augustine, now I, so, have some of y'all on the call heard about Augustine? Yeah. Did anybody yes. ever tell us that Augustine was a black, um, a, a black monk, and that he, he all his ministry time was spent in North Africa? No. No. Do we do we tell our children that when they're talking about Augustine, they're talking about a faith perspective that comes from living in Africa? Now, now, mind you, he was a wealthy. He was in a wealthy suburb of Africa. He was in the wealthy part, but he was a monk that chose to live a life of humility. When we talk about, you know, um, John Say, the, the, the one that they call John Say the Block, he was a monk in Africa that wrote about being in connection with Jesus. And he wrote, Augustine wrote the Confessions. John Say wrote a whole order of how do you get passionate about doing the work of Jesus? Do we really encounter that kind of conversation? No, no sir, because I've read his books, but I never knew he was black. Yeah, and I mean, what happens is, if we don't, if we don't know it, we can't pass it on to our young people. Yes. And they yeah. get frustrated because they're like, oh, we, we don't know how any of this works. We we don't we don't see where we're connected. I don't see where I fit in the story. And I'm gonna tell y'all something about people in general. If I can't see how I fit into the story, then I don't really care for the story. And and, and that's what we're dealing with. You know, we're dealing with that. And then even if you look at it in terms of Okay, so you don't want to go back that far, but if you look at it in terms of today and po what, what um, Howard John called post-middle um, post, um, passage, our post coming to this country, um, we, don't, we don't even look at it from that perspective. And that really hurts us in spreading what, we, what Christ called the good news. Because, you know, we just don't. I'm going to add in something because I, I, I hear y'all questioning in the back of your throats. Okay, Rev, we, we, we don't know all of this. Um, so uh, that might be too much for tonight. Hold on. Let me find a simpler one. Okay, here we go. I'm going to share another video right quick because I, I, I want y'all to hear something else. I'm not seeing you, you know. I'm just listening. Okay, well, you have to listen harder then. Okay. And for those of you all that just listening, this is a video taken okay. from Badoon Cookman. Uh, a lot of these uh, sentiments around you know, Christianity and white man's religion it often comes from our experience and also our corporate experience in this country. But as Lisa mentioned, what 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 really inspires and really moves a lot of my scholarship is uh, is the is the desire to bring people further back in history. Because the reality, the sad reality is that uh, in in this country, in this in this hemisphere, uh, terrible things were done to Africans and Native Americans in the name of Christ. Um, but what what happened?
happens, I think, with this, with this, uh, you know, the thing that I have to take extreme issue with uh, was the part in the video where he said, well, Christianity, uh, you know, other religions, and then he was talking about Christianity and Islam in particular, uh, have come into the African's life and culture through force. Uh, and yeah, that's true for Islam, most definitely, but that's not true at all for Christianity. So just real quick, uh, I wanted to, uh, so when we look at the transatlantic slave trade, when we go back before that into late antiquity, the, this is the thing that is apologetically, I think the most helpful thing to respond when someone says something like that, is to tell them that not only did, did Christianity come into the continent of Africa peacefully and willfully, um, not, not only did, in contrast to that, did Islam come into the continent of Africa in the year 640 with the sword, but most importantly, all, not just one or two, all of the ancient African Christ kingdoms were Christian. They didn't just have Christians in them. They were Christian nations. Carthage, or Numidia, with capital of Carthage, Egypt, Nubia, and Ethiopia. These are the, you know, these are the ancient African Christian kingdoms. So starting in the first century, and again, like is the case in all early Christianity, the gospel spreads through the Jews, right? I mean, in Acts 2, Egyptians were there, Mesopotamians, Arabs. So these Jewish people who received the Holy Spirit went back to their land and they brought the gospel. So it's the same thing with, with Egypt and, and also in Carthage, the earliest African Christian kingdoms. We saw Simon the Cyrene up Jesus carried the cross. So we know that there was Christians, the early evidence. Some of the earliest martyrdom texts, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, uh, you know, also, um, Tertullian, one of the earliest uh, Christian apologists, was from Carthage. And then also in Egypt, we have the earliest biblical fragment that is extant from Egypt in the mid-2nd century. It, from anywhere, it comes from Egypt. We have the first seminary in the history of uh, Christianity in Egypt. And uh, also in, in Nubia, the gospel comes in through Egypt, debatably sometime in between the 5th and 6th century, through Egyptian missionaries going into Nubia. But it's likely that Christianity came in Nubia even before that because the eunuch mentioned in Acts chapter 8, even though the New Testament calls him Ethiopian, was more likely a Nubian because Ethiopia in Greek is just a kind of a stock word for saying a black person in, in Greek, where in actuality mm -hmm. says he was a eunuch of Tangus, which was the titular title of the queen of Nubia, Moroi. So likely this was a Nubian, this was the first Nubian Christian in Acts 8. And so, but we have documented evidence of it, of the Nubian king uh, receiving Christianity. You can read Salim Farage's book, The Roots of Nubian Christianity, learn more about that, but already in the mid, uh, fifth century. And then even earlier than that, in Ethiopia, we have Christianity no later than the mid third century with, like the king of, of Nubia, uh, Silko, King Azana of, of Ethiopia, proclaims Christianity as a state religion. And in the early fourth century, Christ Ethiopia becomes fully Christian and also receives a missionary named Tremitius from, from Egypt who brings the gospel in Christian and converts the, the royal and imperial household and brings Christian to Ethiopia. So, so already in the first and then in the fourth and then in the fifth century, by that time, all of this before Islam even existed, before Muhammad was even born, all of these African Christian kingdoms were again Christian nations, which, uh, you know, which um, by the time of the sixth around 640, after the death of Muhammad and his early followers, the Rashid Caliphate, 
conquers all of the Arabian Peninsula, goes into Persia, and goes into the rest of Mesopotamia. When they come into uh, when they come into Africa, this is one of the interesting things that happens. And this is, goes back to the point I was trying to make about um, feeling a sense of cultural ownership in the gospel. People have to feel like uh, the gospel belongs to me. I'm a part of this. This is God's gospel, but I can see myself in this. If, if that doesn't happen, it's not going to thrive and for the long term. And so just to give a case study real quick about how the, uh, this, in, in the case of ancient African Christianity, you have two that survived, two today, and then two that didn't, two that are extinct. And I just want to make a quick point to draw that parallel, to make that point, that the two that survived are the Coptic Orthodox Church, which is still a thriving ancient church, which is the dominant Christian church in Egypt. Eight Christians are about 15% minority in Egypt, but uh, the Coptic Church has been in Egypt longer than Islam has existed, and is still a, a strong presence in the country today. And then the Ethiopian Orthodox Kingdom Church, which is still the dominant religion period in the country of Ethiopia. And the two that are extinct are Nubian Christianity. Nubia was a predominantly Christian kingdom starting in the fifth century. And uh, interestingly about Nubia, Nubians uh, were the only country that successfully fought off Muslim invaders. All right. I, I know y'all didn't want all of that, but um, let me let me let me timeline the Bible for you once again before we get into some of that. Um, when was the Bible? When was the the New Testament? When were the Gospels written? When do we start to get Gospels? Because sometimes we look at the Gospels and we think, okay, Jesus died on Sunday, and on Monday morning they wrote and published the Gospels. But that's not really how it fits into context. When were the Gospels starting to come together in their present form and be written? Uh, oh, be written? Yeah. Oh. I recorded. Recorded, written. They, they didn't have audio recorded. So, yeah, recorded, written down. I mean, but I think what's happening in the first century, yeah. No. <laughs> they weren't. We didn't get the Gospels until about the third or fourth century. In the first century, they weren't writing down Gospels. They weren't really interested in that because Jesus Christ was coming back next week. So they were waiting for the world to be to, to be sucked up and, and taken over. And, and, and we don't really get the, the written form of the Gospels. We get disciples' message and we get the scripts, but we don't really get the written until almost 70, 80, 90 almost 120 years after the death of Christ. And a lot of time we don't realize that. We don't realize how much space is in there from when the word was actually written down and started to be circulated as a quote unquote gospel. And because and of were, that, uh-huh. Telling, telling the story though? Oh yeah, they, they, they were telling, telling the story. story. Don't, don't get me, no, the stories were there. And there's some scholars that say there were some notes, like Q, Q, what they call source documents. Our notes were written down. But remember now, when you see these Gospels, the, 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 the Gospels in the New Testament, those are published works. Those are, they've been organized, they've been footnoted, you, you know, they, they, got, they, got, they got context, they've been written by several people. You know, this is the, this is the, the travel narrative. It's ready to go out. 
And that's what we see in the gospel of Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. These, these were ready to be passed out to people. This was, this was, this was what was going to go and spread out. And, well, that's, that's a perfected form. And yeah, there were some stories, there were some messages. Um, and, and, and the other thing is we don't want to get into Constantine yet, but you know, they, they they hadn't been found as a canonical gospel. They hadn't been put together yet. So when they go to sit down and put together the Bible, um, they're gonna throw out some of these early gospels too. So you you got the gospel of Mary, you got the gospel of of, of Herodotus, you got other gospels that just got tossed out because they didn't feel that they fit the format when they make the canon. But the 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 the, the, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those gospels, those canonical gospels, the ones that fit the book, they weren't all ready to go day one of the death of Jesus. Now, why is that important in this context? Because in this context, we need to also understand that the church was located in Africa and it was growing and it, the temples were being built. And these churches, as the speaker was just saying, they were thriving. You know, they were strong churches. He says, in ancient Africa at a time, all the major nations in Africa were what? Christian. How many times have we heard that in Sunday school? That all the major nations at this time were Christian. You know, we hear these places, we hear about Carthage, we hear about Nubia, we, 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 we hear about them, but nobody ever says these were African nations and they were Christian on the continent of Africa and they were powerful and, and, and they were strong. The author also tells us that Nubia refused to be conquered by the Muslims. The Muslims couldn't even conquer it. And one of the things that I found most fascinating, there were two major religions that survived the Ethiopian Coptic church, the Ethiopian church and the Coptic church. They are still thriving today and you can go visit them today. And they've been there since the time of Jesus since first century. And that that's important for our, our children need to know that because what did he say? If you don't see yourself in the gospel, you can't embrace the gospel. Right. No connection if you don't see yourself. Yeah, you know, when we hear people talking about when we talk, we, we we dealt with this in the first lesson in this series. When when your grandma talks about her faith, you know, what do we compare our faith? When we talk about our faith, we compare what grandma taught us, don't we? We, we, we yeah. compare it to what, what we heard growing up in the church. And it's a part of us. But if we had had this empowerment, that the Nubians, that Tertullian, you all have heard of Tertullian, hadn't you? Some. Did you know that Tertullian was a North African um, teacher? Did you know that the first seminary, everybody always, you know, I've had colleagues in, in other denominations tell me, well, all y'all do is go to seminary. You're not going to learn anything about Jesus in seminary. Did, did we ever teach anybody that the first seminaries 
were on the, the first center there was on the continent of Africa? Teaching and training folk. And, and then it, it really begs, how do we lead the culture? If you don't understand, if you don't, if you don't embrace the culture of church, then you miss it. You know, and so many times we miss the culture of church, the culture of faithfulness. Uh -huh. All right, here's one of the questions right here. Why do you think this question is Christianity a white man's religion has recently resurfaced amongst people of African descent? Why is it back? Oh, they just don't want to go to church. <laughs> I, I don't that's true too, but I think it's the recent rise of white um, white well never it never went away. White supremacists and how we see it propagated on television by white ministers. I yeah. think that's the reason also. I think it has a lot to do with it, Sister Kim. Um, you know, a lot of white evangelicals. I mm. I honestly think the evangelical white evangelical church is broken right now. And I honestly think that some of the current politics has broken it because, you know, for a while it was fine to just say, oh, praise the Lord. Everything is good. Everything is happy. And we knew we were living in oppression and we knew we were living in subjugation, but we were okay with that. But then when it comes straight out and we start to hear teaching and preaching that says that everything is wonderful now and we know we're going through oppression and we know we're going through hardship. You know, that's not that's not jiving with what we see as our Christian experience. All right, okay, uh-huh. I I had um because the way Christians, white Christians present their Christianity in relationship to us, they tolerate us, but they don't embrace us as brothers and sisters. I wonder what would this teaching, do you think that they're white Christians that you all come in contact with? Do they know this history of Africa as the start of their religion? Do they understand the continent of Africa is where Christianity started? Do they understand that some of the earliest teachers, huh? Of course not. Because well, they think that everything began with the, with white, the white race, just like we're indoctrinated and the educational system to believe that white people did it all. They believe the same thing about Christianity, that Christ was a white man and they did it all. And I, I think that's really unfair to our white sisters and brothers not to teach them the true history. You know, this history needs to be shared with, with all races, all cultures, so they understand where Christ fits in context. So they understand the faith where it comes from. Now, you know, well, I push that to ask. That they probably could. So what? I'm sorry. If they would just look at a, a atlas. An oh, atlas? But then, you know, stuff like Tertullian and Augustine and the Desert Mothers, and, 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 and you know, a lot of folk don't have no clue who the Desert Mothers were. Because let me tell you the conflict with them. This was a group of women that lived out in, in, in the desert in North Africa. They started their own ministries and missionaries. And the thing about it is in their monasteries, they would not allow men to come in. 
first and foremost. Secondly, they were out there worshiping, and you know what the people said? Even though they were Christian, even though they believed in Jesus and taught Jesus, they said because it was all women that they were out there um, doing witchcraft. They, they called them witches. And it wasn't until just recently that we've uncovered some of the great manuscripts of these women and how they were praising Jesus and how they were talking about the Trinity and how they were talking about the fact. And what they would do was they sat out there in the desert for when folk got lost or got trapped or got injured, they would come and minister to them and heal them. And, and because they used medicine and, 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 and techniques of that sort, folks said they were doing witchcraft, but they were Christian missionaries with a purpose to serve the Lord. And they got some of the most rich writing and teaching. Um, you know, we'll just have to share some of the teachings of the desert mothers. But the, the problem is people misunderstood them, so they misdiagnosed them what they were. You know, um, and, and all these years we missed this connection that these were the black women out in the middle of the African desert teaching faith. What, what about this idea that, you know, even the Ethiopian Enoch, you know, that, that was proof that there was a church, a, a Christian church in Ethiopia even when we get to Simon Serenian, who helped carry the cross of Christ, that was a proof that there were followers of Christ all before, you know, on the continent. But we could have just shared that little bit, but a lot of the children in the Sunday school classes don't even get that much. Thank so, before y'all um, run away today, what about this question here? How would you respond if asked, is Christianity a white man's religion? Well, not answering the question. I would say, like, white people always um, portray Jesus as being as being white. Every picture I saw when I was growing up as a child, it was a white Jesus in a picture. You know, mm -hmm. they had long, he had long hair and bright skin just like a white man they never portrayed him as being who he actually actually was in a picture we never and that's what we used to you know we were shown we were growing up white jesus i mean jesus looking like a white man but you're, yeah. even that's indoctrination right there you grew up seeing that all your life oh yes, same indoctrination that we received in the public education system right yeah. Why do you think that the ch black churches continue that teaching, though? And they still do it, right? I don't know. Oh, she said still do. They, uh, you don't think we fixed it yet? No, we ain't. Some, so, some places are fixed, but I think they still believe that a lot of them do. But thank goodness that we have this lesson. We have a start to, to what they call awaken. Yeah. They say have an awaken moment. Dr. Mason at um, Epiphany in Philadelphia, and that's where he is. Um, his, his whole series of sermons on Christianity, is Christianity a white man's religion, is called Awoke. And it wow. deals with the fact that the church got to wake up and we got to mm -hmm. start teaching this. And yeah, I, I sadly announced that in 2020, during the COVID, I still hear sermons from black preachers that have no clue 
that this is a black religion. They don't talk about Denmark Facey. They don't talk about um, the fact that Harriet Tubman, I heard a preacher preach on Harriet Tubman and talk about the fact that Harriet Tubman carried a gun and told people that if they wanted to be free, they need to keep moving. But I didn't hear that preacher say a word about the fact that the whole time Harriet Tubman was freeing folk from slavery, she felt that she was on a mission from God. I didn't hear that preacher say a word about that Harriet Tubman would have spells and during the spells, she said she would connect with God and God would tell her where to go. Now, you, you can talk about Harriet and this gun, which I don't even think was loaded really, but you can talk about the fact that she had a gun, but you can't talk about the fact that in the, the tradition of Harriet Tubman, she was communing directly with God and getting a message for freeing the slaves straight from God. See, see, when we leave out little details like that, it makes it sound like, you know, Harriet Tubman was just this superwoman on her own. And, you know, the reason we called her Moses wasn't because she freed the slave, but because she had used her relationship with God to, to move slavery forward. That's how we got to tell the story. We, we can't tell the story of Martin Luther King and I have a dream without talking about the night before. He said he prayed so long that night before that I have a dream speech that he didn't even sleep that night. You know, we, we got we to gotta connect the faithfulness Yes, ma'am. And not only that, Pastor, I, I heard a story about that, that that he wasn't even going to tell about his dream until until Mahalia Jackson said, Martin, tell about your dream. Yeah. Tell him about the, the sermon was failing. And, and y'all don't know nothing about that, but sometimes sermons fail. And the sermon was failing. It was, it was, it was not a good sermon. The speech was dry, dying flat on the pole. And then she yells out, Martin, tell him about the dream. And, and even, even in that connection, though, before we get off, the, the, the whole text to the I Have a Dream comes from a prayer from Prathia Hall the night before. And um, Prathia was praying, and she, had, she said, I have a dream. And bless his heart, Martin just copied the main points from the prayer and deliver them in the speech. Hello, somebody. Hello. But it, it's something beautiful and good. You need to use it. Amen. You know, we Amen. need to be a, you know, one of the keys to this whole lesson is being apologists. How do we stand for the truth of the gospel? And when someone asked us, is Christian, it's not a white man's religion because it's your religion. And you're not a white man. And you don't have to limit it to being a white man's religion. You can take this Christianity because you it's in you. It's a part of you. It's Amen. as deep as the river Nile runs in Africa. And you need to share with folk your heritage and your history and the freedom. We need to teach folk that Christianity brings about freedom to the oppressed. So if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you got to be able to free the oppressed. That's part of what you do as a Christian. And we got to hold some of these evangelicals to the line and say, if you're going to call on the name of my Jesus, then you got to know that my Jesus means freedom for the oppressed. Release for the captives. 
recovery of sight to the blind. You you let them know that that's the faith you got, and we need to let our children know that. Yes, ma'am. We gotta let our children know that. That's how. That's that's where we are. And when we do that, they won't just say, "Well, what I'm gonna go to church for anyway." Mm. When we do that, when we tell them that the Christianity, the, the the this heritage and history that runs deep in your blood, is there to free you from your oppression. Oh, okay, now, okay, Pastor. I just have to say one thing, please, because I read, you know, studying the um, chapter two, and I came across Noah and his sons. Now, I have a, a Dake commentary, a Dake Bible with the commentary, and I, I just happened to be reading it. And, and you know we've heard this over and over as we were growing up, that Ham was cursed. That's why he was black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Come on now. Emma, it is 732. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm stopping at 730 tonight. Next time. Let's see. Oh, okay. if, let's see if we get to it next time. No, we're not gonna get to it next time. We will not get to that until the next time. Next time we'll be on section two, and section two starts with how do we contend against a lie, and we may get briefly into, um. But I want you all, um, because there is in section two, section four, there is what's called who are black people in the Bible? And right there, we got Genesis 10, we got Genesis 16, we got Genesis 41, we got Numbers 12, and can, go ahead and start, start compiling and reading those, because you don't have a whole lot of reading, but start compiling and reading those, because when we get to that part of the lesson, we're going to go into that and that curse of ham is probably one of the biggest lies yeah. in the history of the Bible because you know, and all people kinds lie of Bible and they don't even read. Mm -hmm. But we, we'll get into that. We'll get into that in detail, and we we'll be able to deal with that when we come to it. But we had to end our lesson for tonight, so we need to take prayer concerns and, and move forward. Um, so. Are there prayer concerns we need to share tonight? 